As I mentioned just a few moments ago, it is Memorial Day weekend, and uh, that is, of course, a special uh, weekend that uh, we as a nation celebrate, remember, uh, consider the sacrifice made by those who have died for our country. And so, of course, here at Christ Community Church, we obviously want to take a moment just to recognize those who have served, but more importantly, uh, those who lost their life, have lost their life to, to protect the freedoms that we have here, including the freedoms to come here on a Sunday morning and worship together. That is an important uh, freedom, and people who have given their lives so that we can have that freedom, we honor here at Christ Community Church. I know growing up in a military family, we took Memorial Day very seriously in our family, and uh, uh, it was, it was very, you know, it was something we, we observed. It was, it was an event in our house, a weekend in our house where we observed it. And of course, you know, we, we do a lot of fun things on Memorial Day weekend. It's a, it's a long weekend. And so we get to go on some trips occasionally. Uh, of course, there's some grilling out, some, some enjoying the, the summer months, some grilling out, some good food. Uh, but one of the things that we would enjoy at, at my house growing up is, is turning on the TV and watching good war movies. And we'd, of course, watch those movies, a lot of John Wayne movies, a lot of, uh, uh, you know, historical movies about the conflicts that uh, our country has been in in the past. <clears throat> and one of my, my all-time favorite war movies is, is the movie uh, Glory. And... Uh, we would, when I turned, getting into my teen years, my parents kind of introduced that movie to us for the first time. And of course, if you've never seen the movie, it's a, it's a fantastic movie. It stars Matthew Broderick and, and uh, Denzel Washington and Morgan Freeman. And the topic of the movie is about the, uh, the, the main uh, uh, point of the movie is to highlight the achievements of, the, of a single regiment during the Civil War, the 54th Massachusetts Regiment, who was the first black regiment to serve in the U.S. Army. And it was, of course, made up of all African-American uh, soldiers, uh, um, enlisted men, and it was led by white officers. And it was an important moment in the war because, as framed by the movie, it was somewhat of an experiment. See, many didn't think that the all-black uh, regiment would be a good fighting unit. They didn't trust them in combat. And so the story of the movie is the story of them overcoming that prejudice to participate in at least two to three battles during the war. And it's at the climax of that movie where the 54th Massachusetts Regiment attacks a, a Confederate fort in South Carolina called Fort Wagner. And in that engagement, in that assault on Fort Wagner, they demonstrate incredible bravery. And in the epitaph of the movie, we read that even though they, they demonstrated incredible bravery, they were ultimately unsuccessful in taking the fort. So it seems on, on first glance like it was a failure. 
Nevertheless, as the reporters who are there who witnessed this event began writing about the assault, began writing about the bravery of this all-black regiment, as word spreads in the media, as it reaches the ears of the president, as it reaches the ears of Congress, Congress immediately acts to pass an act raising another 180,000 troops amongst the black population. As the movie explains there at the end, it's those 180,000 troops that help tip the balance and bring that war to a more hasty conclusion. You see, the actions of the 54th Massachusetts inspired a nation. And so it's with that that we get to the reason why the movie is named Glory. Glory. That word glory, what is it? What is glory? The word itself is, comes from the Hebrew word, or the, we get it, the concept from the Hebrew word kavod. Kavod which in Hebrew simply means weight, heaviness. And as the concept has developed, as it develops through Hebrew literature and it comes to us in our day and age, it carries with it this idea of beauty, something of, of refulgent beauty, significance, something that's profound, something that's awe-inspiring. So how do we get from weight to that? The idea in play here is something that weighs heavily on the mind, something that becomes big in the mind. When the 54th Massachusetts demonstrated its bravery at the Battle of Fort Wagner, their bravery weighed heavily on the mind of a nation and spurred them into action. Now, we've been in a series called Generosity, where we're looking at what does it look like to be generous from a biblical perspective. And in this last sermon in that series, we're going to be looking at generous mission. Generous mission. What does it mean? What does it require to be on mission? What do we need? What fuels it? In order to do mission, ladies and gentlemen, God must weigh heavy on your mind. When we think about mission, there's probably no better place to start than in the book of Acts. The book of Acts is the record of the mission of the church. It is the record in Scripture of the church on mission in Judea and throughout the world. And so today to start, we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 26. We're going to go to the end of that book, and we're going to learn about an episode here 
about the end, at the end of the book of Acts. We're going to start at the end. And in this chapter, in Acts 26, Paul, the great apostle, who is essentially the main character of the book of Acts, has been arrested. And Paul finds himself arrested and brought before a court charged with treason, charged with stirring up trouble, charged with heresy, of promoting false religion. And he's brought, been brought to these charges, and he is standing in a court, and his judges are the king of Judea, Agrippa, and the Roman governor of the province, Festus. And as he stands in chains before Agrippa and Festus, he is allowed to give a defense for his charges. And he begins to give his defense. And one of the first things that he says to Agrippa and Festus is he says this, I used to be as all these other people here who accuse me are now. I used to oppose Jesus Christ. I was just like them. But then he, he says this, but then something happened to him. Something happened to me. I was just like them, but then something happened to me. And he says in verse 13, I'll read it, won't be on your screen, but he says, at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And so Paul recounts this story of him on his way to Damascus to persecute Christians when he is confronted on the road by this incredible vision. And he falls to the ground and he hears the voice. And the voice continues, and it says, Paul, I am going to send you as my witness to the whole world. And Paul hears this commission, a commission to go into the world and to open the eyes of the Gentiles. And we pick up in verse 19, and here's what I want you to read. This is what he says to King Agrippa. He says, therefore... O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to that heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying, both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. That the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light 
both to our people and to the Gentiles. So Paul says, I saw him. I saw him. It's all true. I saw him myself. And all I'm doing is proclaiming what Moses and the prophets have said would come to pass. I've seen it. And then he, the conversation finishes like this. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus, that's the governor, said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. But I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things. The king was Jewish. He knew what the Moses and the prophets said. And to, and, and, to, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. This isn't some secret vision that I just had by myself. You've heard the rumors. You've heard all the people who have seen Jesus. I'm just the least of them. These things have not just happened in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Paul said, and, and Festus, and Agrippa says to him, says to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian, Paul? And Paul replied, he says this, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. See, something weighs heavily on Paul's mind. Something is heavy on his mind, the glory of God. He had seen him. And it weighed heavily on of his mind. It weighed so heavily on his mind that those who watched Paul, like Festus the governor, said, you must be out of your mind, Paul. But he wasn't out of his mind. God was in his mind. The glory of God weighed heavily on Paul. And that's the thing with the glory of God. Once you have seen it, you can't get it out of your mind. It weighs heavily on you. And so that's the task of the preacher, isn't it? That's the task of Paul. What Paul wants to do before Agrippa and Festus, is to give them a vision 
of the glory of God. To bear witness to the glory of God. So that it weighs heavily on their minds as well. We should recognize something about ourselves. There's something about us that's pretty common to all mankind, and it's this. We have a profound knack for taking life for granted. We have a profound ability to take life for granted. Take a moment, if you would, and look around the room. Just look. Okay. And then listen. Think for a moment, at this moment, what are you touching? What can you feel? Okay. What can you smell? Well, what was the last thing you remember smelling? What was the last thing you remember or tasting? Chances are, as you look around this room, it's pretty unremarkable. I mean, we don't do church in a grand cathedral with, spot, with large towers and stained glass windows. We do church in a gym. And chances are, when you look around this room, you're like, oh, this is kind of an unremarkable location. Nothing super interesting to see here. Chances are when you hear things, maybe it's just the drop of a pen that somebody just dropped on the, on the floor. Maybe it's just the creaking of your chair. Maybe it's just my voice, and maybe you find that completely uninteresting. I don't know. But maybe you can't even remember the last real thing you really smelled. Maybe you can't even remember what you ate this morning. I don't know. But for most of life, there seems to be nothing special about it. We feel as though it is unremarkable. But imagine for a moment that all of a sudden the room went dark and you couldn't see anything. What would you give just to get another glance at this room? Imagine for a moment your hearing went out and all of a sudden, you couldn't hear a thing. What would you give to get back just the white noise of the air conditioning in the background? What if you lost all sense of taste? What if you lost all sense of smell? What if you could no longer feel? It puts things in a different perspective when you think about losing them. You see, we feel as if this world is not very remarkable most of the time. But in fact, the reality of it is, it is always remarkable. It's always incredible that we get the next moment that we get the next day, that we can see, that we can taste, that we can touch, that we can smell, that we can experience the world around us. As a matter of fact, the reason why we pay note 
on Memorial Day is because we're paying honor to people who have given that up, who have died, who will never see, who will never touch, who do not hear, who do not smell, and who no longer taste. In fact, the existences that we have, the lives that we have, are incredibly remarkable. Paul, when he is also in the book of Acts, this time in Athens, in chapter 17, and he's standing there in the Areopagus, which was the great venue where people came to discuss and debate ideas, philosophies, and new religions, Paul says this to the crowd when he has his opportunity to speak. He says this starting in verse 22, so Paul standing in the midst of the Areopagus said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. He had been walking around the city, and he had seen all the temples to all the gods. And he says this, For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live, live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. You see, God weighs heavily on Paul's mind. Paul understands this. This is the first point. In generosity, God creates and gives us everything that we have. He gives us everything. This remarkable existence that we enjoy, everything we see, everything we hear, everything we touch, Everything we taste, everything we smell, God has given it to us. Every experience in this life, God has given it to us. All of our talents, all of our possessions, all of our friends, all of our families, all of our opportunities, God has given them to us. He is not served by us, but He graciously and generously serves us and gives us everything that we have. God should be big in our minds. 
he should be heavy in our thoughts. He has given us everything. But is that the case? Is that the case? Is God heavy on your mind most of the time? Is he heavy on any of our minds most of the time? This same Paul in Romans chapter 1, when he's writing his letter to the Romans, his great letter explaining the gospel to the Roman church, explains it this way in Romans chapter 1. He says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What do they suppress? What do we suppress? For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. How has He shown it to us? For what can be known about, or for His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. See, here's Paul's argument here. Everybody knows. Everybody knows God exists. How? They can see the world that He made. They can hear the world that He made. They can touch the world that He made. They can smell it. They can taste it. They didn't earn it. They didn't make it. Something else gave it to them. And so they're without excuse. In verse 21, he says, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the what? The glory of the immortal God for images resembling man and birds and animals and creeping things. God did not weigh heavy on their minds. They did not keep His glory on their minds. They substituted it for the things of this world. But praise be to God that He doesn't leave us there. He doesn't leave us there. You see, in generosity, God has given us everything. And even though we have taken it for granted, God is yet more generous. He's more generous. And in generosity, God accomplishes His mission through us. He accomplishes His mission through us. Now, what is that mission? What mission is God accomplishing in the world? The mission that God is accomplishing in the world is relatively simple. It's to tell us the truth. It's to give us the truth. About what? To give us the truth about Him. 
so that we can know him, so that we can know who he is. God's mission in this world is to show us his glory. It's to show us his glory. In Psalm chapter 19, we read this. The heavens above declare the glory of God. The sky above declares his handiwork. The whole world, the reason why it was created is to demonstrate the glory of God. That's what Paul was saying in Romans chapter 1, that in the world that he has created, we can see the gloriousness of our God, the power of a God that create, can create a world like this. So in Psalm chapter 8, we read, O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth as we see it, as we hear it, as we touch it. We can see the power of God through it. You have set your glory above the heavens. We know that this God that we worship is beyond the world that he created. And we see his glory through the world that he has created. That's the reason why God created the world, to show us his glory. But he doesn't just do it in the world outside of us. He also does it through us. God shows and demonstrates his glory through the people he is saving. In the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah says this. In Isaiah chapter 43, he says, Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. And so through the prophet Isaiah, God gives this great promise that he is gathering from the four corners of the world a people to himself through which he will demonstrate his glory. So, I love that phrase at the beginning of that promise, fear not. Fear not. You know what the most common command in all of Scripture is? It's that. Fear not. It's said hundreds of times, fear not. And that's it's obedience to that command that Paul stands before Festus and Agrippa and boldly proclaims the glory of God. It's the same concept of God gathering a people that Paul discusses. Again, all he's doing, as he said at his trial, is he's saying exactly what the prophets and what Moses predicted would happen. And he references this concept from Isaiah in Ephesians chapter 1. When he writes his letter to the Ephesians, here's what Paul says to the Ephesians. He's talking about those who have believed in Christ, and he says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory 
and grace. I mean, to the praise of his glory. The praise of his glory. God is gathering a people. God is choosing a people for himself that will be to the praise of his glory. And then he continues, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promise Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. See, God is not only showing his glory in the world around us, he's showing his glory through a people, through a people who will serve him. How will they serve him? They've received something. They've received the Holy Spirit. And they've received the Holy Spirit, and God is working through them by the Holy Spirit to accomplish His purposes to bring glory to Himself. You see, Christians often struggle sometimes. They often struggle sometimes because they they hear preaching and they hear teaching about the Holy Spirit, and they sometimes wonder, I think, do I have the Holy Spirit? Have I been given this Holy Spirit? Have you ever wondered that? How do I know if I've received the Holy Spirit? How do you know? You can know that you've received the Holy Spirit if you are giving praise to the glory of God. The sign that you have the Holy Spirit is that from your lips comes the praise of the God who saved you. If you are pointing to His glory in Christ, and if it works out in your life through the fruit of the Spirit, right? In Galatians, which is just, if you turn in your Bibles from Ephesians 1, is just the next page over, back, one back, we read about the fruit of the Spirit. And what is that fruit? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control which when the Christian practices these things, when they do these things in their lives, who gets glory? God does. Who do we attribute all of our good works to as Christians? The work of the Spirit in our lives. And when we do that in humility, realizing that any good that we do in this world is the work of God working in and through us, We are giving praise to the glory of God. And when we do that, we can be assured that the Spirit is at work in us. In the next chapter in Ephesians, Paul says this, he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, for we are His workmanship 
created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. See, those with the Holy Spirit properly attribute all of their goodness to God and to His glory. He weighs heavily on their minds. All of this is God working out His mission through the people of God, through you and me, as God becomes bigger and bigger in our minds. But that's not all. Not only does God use us for His glory, not only are we put into service for God, but God also saves us. In generosity, God promises to save us. One of the easiest things to take for granted as Christians is our salvation. You mean, there's no requirement that God save any of us. There's no requirement that, that for God to be good, He has to save me or to you. God could have demonstrated His own righteousness and then demonstrated my unrighteousness and said, see, I alone am worthy and you are not. But He doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. Instead, He saves us. He demonstrates that He is worthy. He demonstrates truly that we are not. But then He saves an unworthy people. And that is the gospel that Paul proclaims. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we get the great chapter, my favorite chapter in all of Scripture, in which Paul, once again, is declaring to another church the gospel. And he says this in verses 1 through 10 to the Corinthian church. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. You see, that's a message of salvation to the Corinthians. Not only are they to be used by God to declare His glory, but they are going to be saved by God for their own benefit. They get an inheritance. They're going to be saved. They're going to receive eternal life. Their sins have been paid. That concept of sin is so closely associated with what we've already talked about, about taking this world for granted. You see, God has given us everything that we have, and all He's told us, what He's told us to do with it is to bear His image with it, to give Him the glory, to be grateful for what He's given to us, to obey Him, to honor Him. But what we had been doing was honoring ourselves. What we had been doing is bearing our own image, 
what we had been doing is taking what God had given to us and spending it on ourselves. And we've incurred a debt. We've incurred a debt. And because we've incurred that debt, God has every right to stop giving us anything. And that's death, right? When you lose all the good things that God has given to you. It's when he takes it away. But Jesus paid our debt. He paid our debt. And he's raised to show that he can pay it. You see, one of the great messages of the cross is this, that God can pay all of our debts, that he has given us all that he's given to us, and though, even though we have wasted it, he has more. He has an infinite supply of life. He has an infinite supply of goodness to give. He has more. He can pay it. And the reality is, he's always paid it. He's always given it. He has given from himself to us everything. And there's more with God. And so Paul continues. He says this. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. You see, God is heavily on the mind of Paul. He knows that God has paid for all of his sins through Christ. He has seen the glory of God. Christ appeared to him. And he knows that even though he has done this incredible work, even though he has gone from church to church to church, preaching the gospel all over the world, even though he has worked harder than any other pastor, any other missionary of his day, it isn't him. He is what he is by the grace of God. It's God's grace at work in him. It is in this spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, that Paul stands before Agrippa stands before Festus and says, I am not mad. I am, pre I am teaching you, I'm telling you reasonable and rational words. I wish that you were 
as I am. I wish that God weighed as heavily on your mind as it does on my mind. I wish you had seen his glory as I have seen it. I want that. Paul wants that. You see, what's inspiring about Paul is not that Paul is successful by worldly standards. It's not. There's nothing about Paul that is especially inspiring or, or noteworthy about him. He describes himself over and over again as the chief of sinners. Even here in 1 Corinthians 15, he describes himself as one completely unworthy for this task. He used to persecute Christians. What is inspiring about Paul is not Paul. What is inspiring about Paul is what inspires Paul. You see through Paul to the vision of God that he must have in his mind to do what he did. He must have seen something. He must have seen something. How else do you explain a man who was in high authority in, in, in Judea, who was a Pharisee of Pharisees, who had it all going on for him by worldly standards, to give all of that up, to go to preach all throughout the world, to be beaten by, by mobs, to be thrown out of the city, to be stoned twice, to be sent to prison, to be sent on a, on a prison ship all the way to Rome, to live years in a prison in Rome, and then to be taken out for his execution. All the while, proclaiming the glory of Christ. How else do you explain that? It's not that we look at Paul, at Paul and say, oh, he became like a king in this world. Look at all the wives that he got. Look at all the wealth that he obtained. We don't look at Paul and say, that's, a, that's your best life now. We look at Paul and say, he saw something. He saw something. And it weighed heavily on his mind. See, Paul knew that in the end, he had won. He won. He knew in the end that he had won. And that's why he concludes 1 Corinthians 15 with this. In verse 51, he says this, Behold, I tell you a mystery. He's explaining a mystery to them. He's explaining what's going to happen. He says this, We shall not all sleep. But we shall all be changed in the moment, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, in the last trumpet. At the end, we're going to be changed. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed. For the perishable body must put on imperishable. This body that dies must become a body that doesn't die. And this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? 
The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. You see, in generosity, God guarantees us the victory. He guarantees us the victory. Because He has guaranteed us the victory, for us, we can be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord because of God's generosity towards us. Our labor is not in vain. And so let me leave you with this. Ask yourself this. How big is God in your mind? How big is God in your mind? Have you seen His glory? At the beginning of Acts, in Acts chapter 1, Jesus says... He commissions his disciples and he says this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. You'll receive power. Now, most of us read that. And we think, oh, man, wouldn't it be great to get that power? I mean, what power must he be talking about? Certainly, it's the power to heal the sick. Certainly, it's the power to calm the storms. Certainly, it's the power to stop great tragedies like we had in Uvalde this week. Certainly, that's the power that God is talking about, isn't it? That's not the power. The power is promised to us is an even greater power, just one we take for granted. The power that Jesus grants to His disciples is to be His witnesses. It's the same power you have to be witnesses to the glory of God in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great grace that you've given to us. All of our lives is grace. Everything we've ever been given is grace. And we praise you. We give glory to you. And I pray for this church that you will weigh heavily on their minds, that they will see the glory of God, and that it will move each of us to be witnesses to that glory in Christ Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.